it is it is an excuse in an environment of face-to-face human interaction, which is something I think we're starved for, right? We're, you know, we're on social media all the time, but we're always feeling really alone. I'm Peter Creighton, and welcome to The Looking Glass, a program that examines the stories behind personal interests. Let me tell you about a love affair that began in the summer of 1997. I was entering eighth grade, and my family and I were in Orland Park. It's a suburb of Chicago. We were driving home from the mall when my dad announced that he was pulling over to visit this music shop off of 159th Street. The music shop was on the second or third floor. I really don't remember which because I never made it up there because on the first floor was Threshold Records. It was an independent record shop and the first one that utterly captured my imagination. The store was probably the size of a 7-Eleven and I still remember the layout. As you entered the store, on the left were band posters. Next was its impressive CD inventory. And then finally, the last section was records. Now. In the summer of 97, records were passe and really uncool. Remember, this was the absolute height of the CD, and to my 14-year-old brain, nothing would ever top its glory. But that all changed when I came face to face with records. I can't explain how or why I was so drawn to them at the time, but I knew that I couldn't leave the store without buying one. It didn't matter that the family turntable wasn't connected. I needed to have one. So when I left the store, I was the proud owner of the Ghostbuster soundtrack. And my love affair with vinyl had begun. Even though Thresholds is gone, I still feel its impact. As the majority of my money, it's spent buying records. But why do these pieces of plastic elicit such a strong connection. What is it about the experience that is so captivating? To explore that question, we need to understand exactly what vinyl records are. We need to explore analog. I call this entry the analog experience. For the majority of my life, I've been an active participant in the field of education. So I'm pretty much conditioned to, if I have a question, ask a teacher. And that's exactly what I did. I sought out one of my old communication professors to explain what is analog and how it works. Joel Sternberg, or Dr. Joel Sternberg, and I'm Professor Emeritus in the Department of Communication at St. Xavier University in Chicago. Everything we see in here is a continuous transmission of information. And analog converts that information into electrical waves, and that's what strikes our ears and becomes sound. There's a vibration in our eardrum that is is sound, and then it's processed in our brain, and, and that's what we hear. Like I say, everything we see and hear is analog. We can, we can change the technology and make it digital through a different process, but basically any sound, any picture is analog, you know, as it strikes us, as it strikes our senses. It's linear, 
Uh, it's an exact, from a sound perspective, it's an exact sound. It's all of the sound. And I think of a, like a bumpy road moving from left to right, just a bumpy road. And the bumpiness reflects fluctuations in the sound. And those fluctuations come about through volume, through pitch, through the quality of the sound, through the duration of the sound. But it's an exact sound. So everything that you hear out there as it strikes our senses is what analog is. Digital comes into, into, into the picture in the 1970s, the compact disc in the 1983. But prior to that, everything we had was an analog. So your phonograph would be analog. Radio, uh, for all intents and purposes, radio appears on the scene in 1920, although there are stations that were on the air prior to that. Um, vinyl records. CBS introduces uh, the 33 and a third vinyl in uh, 1948. RCA, a year later in, in competition, introduces the 45 RPM record. Those are examples of analog technology. The return of vinyl has been a cultural phenomenon. It has spurred such events as Record Store Day, College Radio Day's Vinylthon, and others. But when did this phenomenon start? David Sachs was interested in answering this question. Sachs is a Canadian journalist and author of Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter. Here he recounts how he first began to notice the return of records. It was about, the whole thing started for me about 10 years ago. Um, when uh, I was living here in Toronto with a roommate and we had just kind of digitized all our CDs. I put them on iTunes, figured a way to bring them to the stereo and then almost instantly stopped listening to music. Like It was really out of sight, out of mind. And then very shortly after that, um, my roommate's parents gave us their old turntable and a bunch of records. And you know, we started listening to those records and kind of comparing them to often the same songs or the same records on, uh, you know, on MP3s. And the difference, not just sonically, but like in the way that we were listening to it and started noticing that more people, especially my contemporaries at the time, you know, people who were, I don't know, I guess 25, 26 at the time, were listening to records, were getting into turntables, were getting into, you know, film photography and, and vinyl uh, records and, and notebooks, um, and, and that there was something bigger that was sort of going on. And really, over the past decade, which is the exact same time that kind of the iPhone came out and, and sort of the, the, the smartphone era that we're living in really blew up, is when this started growing almost in parallel to that. The majority of these new record collectors are young people, high school and college students who never really grew up during the height of the medium's popularity. Working at a university allows me to interact with a number of these new young record collectors every single day. Recently, I sat down with two of them, Sean Anderson and Mia Morgan, two of my students who work with me at the college radio station I oversee. And I asked them, how did they first get into collecting vinyl? First, Sean Anderson. I got into records when, when I was getting into music and learning more about it, uh, listening to music on Spotify, um, taking old CDs from my parents, putting it on my iPod, and then you know vinyl started kicking up back up again. You know, getting more popular. I started learning about it. 
Um, I was interested in getting a record player. Ended up getting a record player for Christmas. I think it was in 2013. Uh, my collection started when I was at my grand grandpa's house, and I was going through, you know, just his house because he's got a ton of stuff laying around. And then behind uh, one of his uh, like speak old speaker systems were just a stack of vinyl. Okay, so for a while, for like a few years, I wanted a vinyl player, and then I never really researched like which ones to get or anything. But then I saw one. I really liked the style of it, and then I got it for Christmas. But then even before I got that, I was like, well, I'm going to need vinyl to play. And then we had some vinyl hanging up in the management office. So I stole one because it was the Wiz. And I was like, okay, this will be my first vinyl that I play. Um, But then once I got my record player, I was just like, everything and anything I can get on vinyl, I should probably get it on vinyl. While many of us are completely surprised that young people would see the appeal of vinyl records over, say, Spotify, Joel Sternberg isn't. The thing I, I hear most often is the difference in sound quality. Since analog is an exact sound, uh, think of digital as an estimated sound. And it's sampling the analog signal. And in the sampling, it's leaving some things out. So in the process, you have digital, which is a very clean sound. The, the disc is smaller. It's easier to store. But analog gives you a more complete sound. It's an accurate sound. As, as a result of that, people say, well, it's a warmer sound. Uh, it's a more fulfilling sound. You know, you hear all these kind of comments coming back. There's a difference in, in the sound quality. And that's what people seem to like. And younger people are locking on to that. You know, those slight imperfections that occur in, in analog give it a character. But there's another element to it, one that is far more personal. Here, David Sachs explains how vinyl, and really analog technologies in general, fulfill a very human need. You know, analog technology is growing now and having this resurgence because it is, you know, everything your smartphone is in. And your smartphone and your computer can do all sorts of wonderful things and they're incredibly powerful. And everybody has one. And everybody has access to the same things. Everybody can get a Facebook account, a Twitter account. You can sign up for Spotify. You can get on YouTube. I mean, you know, the barriers to entry are low. It's, it's basically free or very little cost. Like everyone sort of has that. It's kind of common. And because of that, you're able to sort of see a new value to what the analog things are. You're able to appreciate them in a new way. And, and you know, a big part of that appreciation is that they are physical, that they don't live on your phone, that they slow things down, allow you to do things in a way that's completely different and provide sort of a, a balance, if you will, to the, to the you know, ubiquitousness of, of digital technology in the day-to-day. And I think the, the humanness and, and the tactileness, but also the human nature of it is a really big part of it. I mean, board game cafes have grown tremendously in cities like Chicago, here in Toronto, all over the world. And, um, and I think a big, big part of that isn't that, you know, you can just play games there because you can play any sort of game with people all over the world on your phone or your computer, you know, your, your Xbox. It's that, it is, it is an excuse and an environment of face-to-face human interaction, which is something I think we're starved for, right? We're, you know, we're on social media all the time, but we're always feeling really alone. Um, we want those, we crave real, social, genuine human experiences. And when someone's able to deliver that, it, it's wonderful. And I think analog technology is, is perfect for delivering that because it requires you to touch and feel and listen and be in a space with other people. 
The variety of experiences offered by analog technologies is one of the many appeals for young people. Here now, Mia. I, I guess like, because I listen to Spotify on my phone a lot. So if I'm on my phone listening to music, then it, it keeps me on my phone and I'm like scrolling through social media and stuff. But with a record, like I put my phone down, put my record on and I sit down. And I'm like, I feel like I need to be doing something else. That's okay. something I just, I was just talking about this yesterday with my friend and I was like, I need to start listening to my records again. Cause like I haven't listened to my record player in a while. So recently I've like, I've fallen away from like coloring or mm -hmm. drawing or sketching as much as I used to. And I'm like, I just need to like put it on and like sit down, grab a sketchbook <laughs> and just like sketch something, anything. I get more of an experience from analog. I feel when I'm listening to it digitally, it's more of either background noise, commuting noise. It's just something where if I'm listening to it digitally, I'm usually going to a place where, you know, when I'm listening to it analogly, I'm stuck in a place. I, I'm doing this. I'm devoting my hour of time to listening to this whole album where digitally I could just, you know, start and pause and, and play and jump around in an album. So I think I'm at least more dedicated to listen to an album or music when I'm sitting down. And I feel like, you know, you do get more entertained and you at least get more entranced in the story that's being told in the albums. More often than not, the fast-paced nature of our lives causes us to forget that we need to slow down. By slowing down, we allow ourselves the ability to do a great many things. And again, this is one of the features that young people are picking up on. I don't know if I pay more attention to it. I think there is more of a encapsulate you get encapsulated with the music you get engulfed in the sound you know you, setting up my stereo system was a pain in the butt uh I, the first set i bought wasn't hooked up right so then i had about buy powered speakers and then finally i got it hooked up and it sounded just beautiful it was engulfing me from the left and right stereo channels and that was something that was really cool so you know hearing it all and feeling it all and and generally you know having my room just surrounded with music it does at least, you know, capture your attention and then having the physical album to art, artwork to look at and then, you know, looking through the liner notes and everything, it does keep you engaged and kind of helps you build more of a story of the music that you're listening to and how that music was taken. Well, when I put on a record, I guess it kind of depends on the record too. Usually I put it on when I just want to like relax and mm -hmm. not, and I don't plan on doing anything really. Sometimes I get inspired just to start sketching or drawing or something. Um, so it's really just there for, I guess, like background noise in a way, but just knowing that, like, I don't know, like it just, it feels good and it kind of keeps me in one place. Like if I'm listening to Spotify or something on my phone, I can walk around and go wherever I want. But with like listening to a record player, you need to like stay in that place. And I mean, you can adjust the volume, but it's not the same as just being in the same room with it. There's something else with analog. Not only does it slow us down when we experience it, but creating it takes a longer time. That slower process has many benefits that really differentiate itself from the faster nature of digital technologies. David Sachs explains. Right, I, I find the most credible applications out there um, are the ones that are tied to some analog form of media. So whether it's, you know, a, a newspaper like the Washington Post or the New York Times um, or, you know, a, a magazine like the New Yorker or Wired or, um, you know, Business Week, 
if it is if it is rooted in something that's physical and real there's there's an economics of it there but there's also kind of a um a i guess a, a measure of quality and and i think it's different but you know someone like buzzfeed does fantastic journalism and fantastic work but it's still best known for like cat lists and stuff mm-hmm. um and that doesn't detract from the investigative journalism they do i think it's just it is it is somewhat different in the same sense there's a trillions of wonderful podcasts out there but you know the npr stations and even the podcasts produced by npr stations are are still you know heads and shoulders the king of the media and that's because not only do they have to appeal to the people who download them specifically they have to appeal to anyone who just turns it on at any time and because of that they they acquire a certain balance and professionalism and tone that that makes them sort of stand above the rest the analog effect isn't just limited to the worlds of entertainment or the arts education too is experiencing a reawakening of its benefits. Sachs continues. Well, especially in the education thing, I remember one expert who um, is at a a university here in Toronto um, and studies marketing, and and she said, you know, the ones, the people who are pushing for e-textbooks and and digital-only textbooks tend to be the older, you know, baby boomer administrators um, who, who, you know, make the assumption that the students who are younger in their 20s and late teens, you know, all they want is, is digital interaction because that's what they sort of see them do. But she found, and, and there were studies, she had done studies to actually back this up, um, that, you know, it, it is the, the younger generations of students who see the value of textbooks and see the value of paper. And, and I went to schools from university campuses to, you know, primary schools and, and asked um, students and kids, you know, why do you like, do you prefer paper? Do you prefer reading electronically? What do you prefer? And the majority said they preferred paper for all the reasons that we know, right? It, I, I feel I can read it better. I can mark on it. I can I can flip up the pages. I can put post-it notes in it. I can underline it. It's mine. I understand it better. I remember it better, and so on. And I think we had this assumption that oh well, the younger people they grew up with digital. That's all they want. But they they see analog, in, in this case, in education, sort of paper for its own merits because it works for them. And I think that's the thing. If we come at it from a place without this prejudgment, oh well, digital is better, that, you know, because it's newer and and that's what we want, then we're able to approach it on its, its merits. And I think where a lot of schools and school districts have really made a mistake is sort of saying, we're going to revolutionize the school by giving every student a tablet and an iPad. That's the future. And then it completely blows up in their face. And they're like, what could have happened? Who could have foreseen that? My students, too, agree with Sax's points. Yeah, like the same thing with books. Like, it's hard for me to read something online or like on a Kindle or something. I'd rather just have the book where I can turn the pages and all that with your notebook i think it's nice to have that stuff in front of you because you know that's never going to be lost and if it is lost it's your fault like you're going to spill water on it and you're going to lose all your notes it's also something where you can connect uh you know kind of physically back to stuff you can see your handwriting you can see how your handwriting's progressed from when you were in fifth grade all the way to you when you're now what 33 34 years old so you can see how you know you're you have changed over the years at least you know with a notebook if your grandchildren find that in 50 years, they're going to be like, whoa, this is crazy. I found, you know, when my, uh, you know, my grandpa was working on all this cool projects where if they find your computer in a Google Docs of all your notes, they're going to be like, all right, this is just kind of boring. Like there's yeah. nothing to search through. I'm just looking at, you know, pages and pages of Arial font 
where if you're having the physical notebook, you can feel the texture of the notebook. You can feel the pages flip through your hands. It has a special meaning to it. I really like Sean's point. An emotional connection can be developed between a person and a physical object. And it's a connection that can really last a lifetime. Here, Dr. Sternberg recalls how, as a young man, he would go and purchase records. Uh, I had a, a phonograph, a little Victrola phonograph, but it played 33s, obviously, and 45s. And uh, I remember I was, I was allowed to buy an album a month. That's <laughs> my parents set a limit. And so I remember my first album was a Louis Armstrong album. I still have it. It's wonderful, you know, yeah. and uh, I can go back and listen to that. And that just generates all kinds of memories going back to, again, when I was a preteen. But as I got older, uh, I was taking guitar lessons from a musician who had played in some of the big bands. I was a terrible guitar player, but he was awesome. And after our lesson, which I think he was grateful for when the lessons ended, uh, we would go to a record store. Uh, and uh, it was Lowe's Records in Hyde Park. And uh, it was a great place for uh, jazz music. And we would go and we would talk about the musicians and, you know, and then I would buy my... At that point, I was uh, into my teen years. I was able to buy more than one album per month. And so we would talk about the musicians, discuss them, and then I would buy some albums. And I still remember those days very fondly. I remember him very fondly, you know, for taking the time to do that. Now that we're at the conclusion of this episode of The Looking Class, and since we're already on the topic of records, I thought it would be fun to ask each one of my guests to share with you three albums that they feel you should at some point listen to on vinyl. First, Joel Sternberg. Uh, well, I think Miles Davis' Kind of Blue is one that, uh, that you should listen to. It's just a magnificent, magnificent recording. It shows Miles Davis at his absolute best. There's a, a female vocalist that I really like, uh, Morgana King, who played um, the Don's mother in the Godfather movies. But she had a very unusual voice, and uh, there's an album uh, in which she sings It's a Quiet Thing. And I, you know, I just love that album, and I can listen to that over and over and over again. And then uh, one of the earlier records that I have is a uh, multi-disc recording on vinyl of uh, Porgy and Bess with an all-star cast. It was Duke Ellington's orchestra, and Mel Torme played Porgy. Francis Fay, a jazz vocalist, played uh, Bess. Uh, Sammy Davis was Sporting Life. Uh, Al Jasbo Collins was the narrator. And uh, that's just a classic for me. Mia. So I have A Tribe Called Quest, um, like the anthology of A Tribe Called Quest. I don't know. That was like, I had heard of them, but not until I got the vinyl. It was a gift. So not until I got the vinyl did I really like get into them. And I'm like... This is awesome. So I definitely recommend that. Hamilton, obviously. And Billie Holiday, classic. Probably just anything, because I have one where it's like a compilation of a few different songs. It's not from like any one album that she has. But if you can just find any Billie Holiday, you can't go wrong. Sean. But it's an Ella Fitzgerald record. And it was in that stack of records that my grandpa had. 
and I put it on. It was just encapsulating. It was kind of like the same thing where I, I, it was kind of the opposite of going digitally and listening to Ella Fitzgerald. I did it analogically, and it was just kind of, you know, with her voice and how deep it is, it's uh, the album Like Someone in Love, and it kind of just stopped me dead in my tracks. The second one I would recommend would be Bruce Springsteen's Live 1975 to 1985 collection. It's five discs, ten sides. It was the thing that got me in love with Bruce Springsteen. Say my last one would probably be Sleep Well Beast from The National. I know it's you know nothing crazy. It's not an old school. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a classic as well. But at least with The National, it was the first album I pre-ordered, and now I need to pre-order more records because I, I felt like I was in a club, and I was in this secret club where I got to listen to The National first. David. Uh, now I got to think of something chicago specifically. Okay, Bad, Bad, Not Good, which is a Toronto jazz hip-hop instrumental band playing with Ghostface Killer from Wu-Tang Clan. The album is called Sour Soul. It is instrumental hip-hop that just sounds absolutely incredible. I would say Bill Withers' Adjustments is just one of the all-time greatest sort of, let's say, troubadour soul records. And then, oh, what's something properly Chicago that I got to think of? I mean, Wilco, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. So what is the analog experience? Well, like most things in life, it varies from person to person. But for me, at its heart, analog is a very human experience. It gets us interacting with our fellow human and causes us to slow down and create. Analog is an avenue for fun, laughter, and community. So, if you've never listened to a record, or it's been a while since you've written in a notebook, why not give it a shot? You may be surprised with how much you enjoy it. The Looking Glass Podcast was created by Stephen Anderson and Peter Creighton. The Analog Experience was written narrated, and produced by me, Peter Creighton. Sound effects provided by SoundSnap.com. I would like to thank my guests, Sean Anderson, Mia Morgan, Dr. Joel Sternberg, and David Sachs for joining us on this episode. Sachs's book, The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter, is available now. I hope you enjoyed the new format, and I would love some feedback. You can leave a comment in the comment section here on SoundCloud, write a review on iTunes, or email me at thelookingglasspodcast at gmail.com. Until we talk again, I'm Peter Creighton, and cheers.